Hello and welcome to Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. Thanks for joining us. I'm Malcolm Borthwick, Editor of Intellectual Capital at Bailey Gifford. The Bailey Gifford Japan Trust is 40 this year. A lot has changed in Japan in four decades. 21 different prime ministers have come and gone. Companies such as Sony, Toyota and Toshiba have helped Japan dominate the world as an exporting powerhouse. Yet the country has also endured decades of economic stagnation. And the population of the world's largest city, Tokyo, has grown by 30% to 37 million. During this time, the Japan Trust has endured and flourished. But enough of the past. As long-term growth investors, we look to the future. So what about the next decade? To discuss this, I'm joined by Matthew Brett, manager of the Bailey Gifford Japan Trust and the Japanese Fund. But before we start our conversation, some important information. Please remember that as with all investments, your capital is at risk and your income is not guaranteed. And I'm delighted to say that Matt and I are back in the Edinburgh studio after over a year of being away. So it's great to have Matt here with me and to chat to a three-dimensional person. Matt, great to have you with us. Thanks, Malcolm. So Japan, what's next? Well, I mean, for us, very much uh, the, the, the first 40 years, as you say, has passed. And what we're thinking about really is is the next 10 years looking forward, you know, to the 50th anniversary of the Japan Trust. Actually, there's a lot that I'm more excited about looking forward 10 years than I am uh, for the past years. So how have things changed, Matt, in terms of the choice of companies that you have now to invest in? Well, I think that's a, a really fascinating point. You know, if we go back to the, the late 1980s, which is a bit before my time, uh, Japan was very much dominated just by the big financials, the big banks. Um, and clearly that didn't deliver a great return for the next kind of uh, 15 years or whatever. When I started looking at Japan back in 2005, uh, really it was a mixture of three things were, were the big parts of Japan. Uh, we still had the, the remainder of the big banks. We also had the car companies and we had some of the big uh, manufacturing conglomerates in Japan. But as we look at, at Japan today, I think it is quite fascinating how uh, the, the index of Japan has changed quite a bit. And when we look at the top parts of the index now, it's mainly dominated by a mixture of, of technology companies and also internet-related businesses are, are the main parts. You know, there's still, Toyota is still in there as well. But in general, it's become, I think, a much more interesting place uh, to invest for a growth investor. You know, we've got basically a, a bigger opportunity set of, of exciting businesses. We've seen a proliferation of both growth and disruption offering more opportunities. How do you think these opportunities will evolve over the next decade? Which sectors, ideas, companies will dominate? Well, I think, you know, the internet has been a, a huge area of opportunity for us, both as a firm and also within within Japan. And, and we still think that is a huge opportunity that, you know, the internet basically allows people to do things cheaper, more efficiently and better uh, than the offline in many cases. And we think that that gives opportunities across retail, across financial services and and many other areas. Another big area that's much more Japan specific is in the the automation related companies. So, for example, you know, the big robot companies and other automation companies. um, 
And we can see at the moment in the world the various supply-related uh, challenges that, that we're having. And one of the obvious solutions to that is to is to make more things more efficiently than we're doing at the moment. And I think Japan has a huge amount to, to offer the world in that sense. And then finally, um, a new area for us that's that's been emerging in, in the past little while has been we've started to get a little bit more exposure to uh, some of the, the cosmetics and skincare related companies. And this is a slightly different type of, of opportunity for us where we can see the, the increasing wealth in the rest of Asia. And um, Asian skincare looks at the Japanese brands very, very favorably. And what people like is similar. And so we think that that could be a, a, a really interesting way for us to play the, the rising uh, wealth uh, trends continuing across Asia. So so those are just three areas that, that are exciting us. And there's many kind of individual companies within that. Robotics is interesting, Matt. And we talked about the exporting companies in Japan, which have dominated the Toshibas, the Sonys, the Toyotas. Um, but what about the world-leading robotics firms in Japan? Because Japan is still very much at the cutting edge and ahead of the game here, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when we look at the major robotics companies globally, you know, there's kind of two hands uh, full of those globally and, and one of those hands is basically in Japan and I think what really makes the Japanese very very good at this area is is a whole combination of things you know they're uh, the, the materials that, that they have to start with the quality they, they put into the steel and things like that's very very high the precision engineering is very good their standards of quality are immensely high and so one of the ways that that, that many uh, parts of the world have been increasing their their manufacturing prowess is basically to buy in uh, the Japanese technology. You know, your robots and computerized numerical controllers from Fanuc, your robots from uh, the likes of Yaskawa, and machine tools from DMG Mori. So, Japan really is providing, I guess, the the, the kind of the the picks and shovels of the modern era. And I think that that should should continue, you know. And you know, when we look at up and coming uh, automation companies from from other areas of the world, yes, um, you know, China's making big strides in automation and is uh, has as a national priority, uh, you know, improving their skills in this area. But when it comes to the high end, you know, the the simplest and easiest way is still to to buy from the Japanese and to 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 really quickly. Uh, increase the, the production quality. Matt, you joined the Japanese equities team 16 years ago when dividends were virtually non-existent probably in Japan. This has changed a lot to what we see now in terms of a lot more Japanese companies paying dividends. How do you see that evolving over the next decade? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a another real area of excitement where Japan is just in a very different place still to many parts of the world. So, as you say, you know, you go back kind of fifteen odd years, and you know, Japanese companies, you know, the dividend was very much an afterthought. Um, I mean, some companies in that stage were actually paying a fixed dividend, and you would ask them why is the dividend fifty yen, and they'd say, well, it just is fifty yen. You know, there was no relation whatsoever. Uh, with the with the the profits of the company, and then we've seen a period where Japanese companies have moved towards uh, paying out a certain percent of profits. 
But during the, the global financial crisis, there was quite a big setback in the dividends in Japan. Whereas what we've seen uh, during the current crisis is quite a different situation where um, the, the Japanese companies have been much more reluctant to cut their dividends in the current crisis. And so we've actually seen a, a very resilient approach to the dividends. And this is backed, obviously, by the large amounts of cash that many Japanese companies still have. So as you say, when we look forward over the next 10 years, I think we're probably you know, somewhere around halfway through this trend in the sense that, yes, Japanese companies pay a lot more attention to the dividends. And yes, they're now paying attention to the stability of those dividends as well. But still, you know, over half of Japanese companies have a net cash position and sometimes it's still very big. And so I think, you know, the, the, the scope to continue to grow dividends ahead of earnings in Japan is probably far better than in, in many parts of the world. And I think that's that's just an excitement in Japan that, that really, you know, is, I think, quite different to how many people's perception of, of the Japanese market is. I always find the perception of Japan interesting, Matt. I mean, as, as a journalist, I was the, the BBC's uh, Asia business editor. Japan as a country or as an investment opportunity used to divide opinion. I mean, I guess in the UK and people outside the UK who are listening might not get this comparison, but it was always seen as somewhat Marmite. Why do you see Japan as splitting opinion so much? I think one of the things about Japan that, that really sticks in people's mind is that was this period in the 80s when Japan was a, a really... A dominant type of force, and you know we've got books in the Bailey Gifford Investment Library about you know Japanese management, kaizen, taking over the world, and so on. And obviously, then you know at the end of the eighties, you know we we had that 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 kind of great uh, crashing of that that bubble, and you know then there was a, a period you know of ten fifteen years of of Japan really, I think, lost some of its own confidence. And I think investors probably lost a lot of confidence in Japan at that time. And so what I find actually when I meet investors is there are two groups of people that are, are kind of more optimistic about Japan. And one of the, the older investors who were around during that 80s period and understand that Japan had very strong uh, characteristics at one stage. And then the, the more recent investors who maybe started looking at Japan you know, as I did 15 years ago, when a lot of the, the 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 more difficult period had already passed by that point, and actually the the stock market since then has delivered decent returns and has been interesting companies. So I think that the the experience of different cohorts uh, looking at the Japanese market, I think, is what has created a lot of that kind of marmite approach. And obviously, there's a kind of middling cohort who started investing in Japan in 1989 and for the first 10 years, you know, had a pretty difficult time. And maybe it's hard for those people to, to shake the impression that Japan is somewhere to, to lose money rather than, than to make money. But that hasn't been the experience for a good 15 years now. When you go to Japan, how different is the perception from the reality? Well, I think it's it's just hugely different, isn't it? So, you know, I remember, you know, first going to Japan, it would be, what, 2005, 2006. And, 
you know, you've been told by some of your colleagues outside the Japan team to be clear that, you know, Japan's a declining and declined place, etc. And you you kind of have this this vision of, you know, like one of those old Western films kind of turning up and the tumbleweeds kind of, you know, going across this kind of declining and decrepit uh, place. So anyway, so you turn up and uh, I, I first went to Osaka and my first thought was, gosh, look at these big buildings, look at how well organised everything is. And my colleague who was with me at the time said, well, wait till you get to Tokyo. It's a good job I started in Osaka because the shock might have been too much. <laughs> and then you get to Tokyo and, you know, it's just the most fantastically um well-organized, clean, efficient uh, city, um, you know, and so there's this perception, as I say, that kind of things stop happening in Japan in 1989 or whatever, but that's not true at all. Japan continued to develop, the real estate market was very dynamic, and so I think, you know, it, it's a great place now, uh, you know, for any of the listeners, I think, to, to go and visit, because people also have a an impression of Japan is very expensive, but actually, I think a lot of that relative expense has disappeared over the years, and it is just such a fascinating place because of the way it's so developed. But it developed with its own history and its own identity, and so it's very developed, but, but obviously very different uh, to, to to the Anglo-Saxon world. And I think that that does make it just a very interesting place. Are we making a mistake, possibly by? comparing Japan to markets that we are very familiar with, like the US and Europe and more specifically the UK? Well, I certainly think, you know, as with anything, we, we look through our own cultural prism, don't we, at things? And, and we, this applies not just to Japan, but to, to China and other countries. And it's very easy to to assume that our ways of doing things are are the correct way or the the best way and you know i think what we would have to say for example is that you know japan people talk about this lost decade and so on but the lost decade was very much a lost decade for investors in the stock market uh, remember unemployment in japan remained very very low and you know for japanese society as a whole that was a very good thing so there was a bit of a a choice that went on at that stage, you know, to protect, uh, you know, the the employees rather than to to protect the shareholders. Now, is that the wrong or the right thing? I don't know. It's different. And one of the things I personally find quite fascinating is the way that over the years, Japan has become more shareholder focused over time. But also, it seems to me that. Uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon model has actually become a bit more Japanese in the sense that, you know, in the past, you know, the, the kind of the dominance of kind of the shareholder value and focusing on the shareholder at the expense of everything, that now feels a very old-fashioned way to think about capitalism. And nowadays, people think about, uh, you know, the various stakeholders in the business. Uh, they think also about the the, the externalities of, of the business. And that's something actually the Japanese in their own way have been thinking quite deeply about for, for decades. So so it is curious how these things can converge over time and what seems odd uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago now actually seems much, much more internationally comparable. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking. It's great to be back in the studio 
and really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you, the audience, have enjoyed it too. Thanks, Marco. You can find our podcast, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, at baileygifford.com forward slash podcasts. Or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or TuneIn. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. And if you'd like to read more about the history of the Bailey Gifford Japan Trust, which marks its 40th birthday this year, go to baileygifford.com forward slash histories, where you can find out more about the fascinating histories of the investment trusts managed by Bailey Gifford. And if you're listening at home, in the car, wherever you're listening, stay well. We look forward to bringing you more insights in our next podcast. Thank you.